Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This episode is with emotional intelligence coach and all-around fascinating guy, Emile Steenveld, who I connected with through a mutual friend here in Bali. And we started talking about his, his travels in India and some of the lessons of simplicity that he's learned and this idea of defining joy as being the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. And I think one of the most interesting tangents that we ended up going down was this topic of being a perfectionist and something that he calls uh, duck syndrome, (laughs) which was really, really fun to talk about. And he shares some ideas around how to build the muscle of emotional intelligence. And I also asked some questions that have been going through my mind around exploring new definitions of masculinity and ways that we can express ourselves without fear of judgment. And along those lines, he shares some journal prompts that he uses when starting new projects and some of his plans for the year. So yeah, it was a great, great chat. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Emil Steenveld. Hello, Curious Humans. I'm here in Bali with emotional intelligence coach and all-around fascinating human, Emil Steinveld. These conversations don't usually follow any kind of linear path, um, but there's a question that I have grown to love that I like to kick off with, and that is, do you feel like you were exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, what were you curious about? Great question to start off with. And... uh... For me, I think I've always been the kind of child to always think a lot and to always ask questions Mm. and always be observant Mm. of people. I was always curious, why do people do what they do? How come they act like that? How come they get this attention? So from a young age, I do remember being a deep thinker. But that deep thinking also got me into a little bit of sadness and feeling like I was separated mm. and uh, feeling like yeah you, you are in a crowd of people but still not feel like you fit in mm. and that was because of the fact that I didn't understand the thought process of what was going on inside mm. so even though I could be around people and I still felt sometimes quite lonely in that space mm. and only when I started to go into the self-development later then I started to get an understanding about why I felt the way I felt. Mm. 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 Beautiful. Were there any books or stories that particularly resonated with you growing up? And I ask because I I feel like there's often clues to our life's purpose or mission Mm. kind of contained in those stories. There was uh, one book, my mother is a psychologist. Hmm. and we had plenty of books but there was one book that she gave me that was really quick to flick through which was Don't Sweat the Small Stuff Hmm. that was one book but the biggest impact I had from a book was called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz Hmm. and at the time it was Four Agreements now it's called The Fifth Agreement he's got a fifth one written by his son Hmm. and that book changed everything the way I looked at every person the way i responded the way i reacted the way i took stuff personally mm. because the first the first agreement is don't take anything well the first agreement is be impeccable with your word say only what you mean and mean only what you say use the word in truth and love the second agreement is don't take anything personal because nothing others say or do is a rejection of you it's a projection of himself and their own world the third agreement was don't make assumptions have the courage to ask for exactly what you want the fourth agreement was always do your best mm. to avoid self-judgment and regret. Mm. And the fifth agreement that came out later on by his son was, what was the fifth agreement? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I remember the saying for it. So the fifth agreement was, I've gone blank. 
But the fifth agreement, the meaning of it was, he's, I remember him saying, don't believe yourself and don't believe anybody else. Mm-hmm. Use the power of doubt to question everything you hear. Mm, I like that. Listen to the intent behind the words to hear the true meaning. Very Socratic. Yeah. Mm. So when I heard that, because this is the thing when I heard, don't believe yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, why wouldn't you believe yourself? Because we are not our thoughts. Mm. We have 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. Mm. You can't be them all. So there's going to be times where you're going to beat yourself up. You're going to talk shit to yourself. You're going to tell yourself you're not enough. You're not smart enough. Who are you to step out of your comfort zone and be something better? Mm. And that's the person he's saying, don't believe yourself. Question, question the doubt. And then when you question the doubt, you question other people's. Because people are going to give you their opinion all the time. Mm. Especially if they haven't done what you're wanting to do. So you question their perception. Because that's their idea. Mm. So you question everything you hear. And when you question everything you hear, you ask yourself, does this align with me Mm -hmm. internally? So that book itself, like, I taught workshops on it. Mm-hmm. That was the first workshop I taught about, was that book. When did you first read it or discover it? I, I think I started reading that book. I must have been 14, I reckon. Okay. Interesting. And um, I know some of your background and story, but I, I know that you spent some time in, in India and trained to be a yoga teacher. Yeah. And I'm really curious what were kind of some of the pivotal decisions or moments that led you to become interested and kind of curious enough to go live in India for two years? Yeah, that was really unexpected. Mm. I was actually living in New York at the time. Okay. I just, uh, I'd been in New York a year and a half. I'd been in America for three years all up. I kind of went through a really tough time in LA before that because the recession hit and Mm. all of a sudden jobs went disappeared and no one was hiring new models or new mm-hmm. talent mm-hmm. i was working three jobs mm-hmm. i was struggling for cash mm-hmm. uh, to the point where i was like literally going from job to job to job mm-hmm. and still falling short were you working as an actor or a model or model actor all of the above waiter <laughs> <laughs> the standard usual thing that yeah. you do in hollywood to make it yeah um after being there a year and a half i just realized it was not my cup of tea um, and I decided to go to New York. So when I went to New York, I started working a lot better. But then even at New York, I was like, I'm doing this, but why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. So I was 27. I was sort of starting to question after three years of being there, mm-hmm. do I keep doing this and do I get, because I just got signed to um, Wilhelmina in New York and they're about to sign me for another three years. They were about to sponsor me. And I'm like, before I do that, I just want to go to India for like three months. Mm. I had a friend of mine that was, uh, I shot a campaign with in New York and she was a Bollywood star in India now. And she was like, just come out with an agency. So the moment I landed there, Johnny, I'm telling you, I felt so comfortable and at ease. Huh. And I don't know if it's the fact that I, you know, my parents are from Cape Town, South Africa, so I've seen poverty before. So it didn't shock me at all. Mm. Um, for most people, it seems to be the opposite from what I've heard. Yes. And it can be really triggering. And Yes. But the moment I, I immediately got into rickshaw and I was going towards my agency and I just remember laughing. And I was like, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. I want dirt roads. I want like chaos. Like realness and realness yes. and aliveness. Yes. I've been in America where everything was so straight and narrow, but no one actually said what they meant. Mm. And the thing that India... And he taught me so many lessons. Mm. Um, but the thing that India, the first lesson India taught me was about simplicity. Mm-hmm. I could see a man on the side of the road that was homeless, sleeping peacefully. But I was also living with a Bollywood star at the time. And I was seeing the other side of that, where I was like seeing the depression and the struggle and the, the paparazzi taking pictures and the, the unhappiness that came from that. And I was like, well, who's richer? And it got me thinking about everything, the whole possibility, because I was in America chasing the dream. I was chasing the houses, the, the fame, this, that. I was thinking, if I become famous, then I'm going to become the coach, and then I'm going to change the world. I was like, you don't need to do that. And this is for a lot of people listening. If you want to go to the thing that's going to light you up, then you go to it. You don't need to do 10 other things before that. That's just you procrastinating because you don't believe that you can have it. And this is what so many of us do. We chase five things when we can go directly to that one thing. Mm. 
and really focus on that. And um, it taught me about simplicity. It taught me about gratitude. Every day I would walk past these slums and the kids would say, uncle, uncle, and they kick the ball to me and I'll play with them and I'm on my way to the gym. And that's when I really started shifting my perception about what am I focusing on? And I simplified my life from always looking out to focusing in. I got back into yoga, started doing yoga regularly. Mm-hmm. And three months turned into two years. I was meant to go back to New York. And what's even more interesting is that my visa was getting planned. I already sent up all the paperwork, all the, like my papers, everything has been sent off and it didn't get there on time. Mm. <laughs> and it didn't get there on time for a reason, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And they said to me, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to process it again. And I said, no, don't. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm not meant to be there. And this is why I didn't come on time. And I'm going to stay in India. So I left my stuff in New York. I never have never gone back. Close everything. I was just like, cool. And I got my housemate and she moved it all out and they moved into bags. And, mm. and I have been back. And India turned into an adventure for me mm. about finding myself again. And as cliche as it sounds, it was like where I was doing yoga, I was. Um, I would do jobs and if I hadn't been to a city before, I would I ride a motorcycle. So I would take the bike and I would go and travel for a week and I'd go and see places and I would journal and do meditation. A lot of introspective work where mm. it was about really just connecting to myself again because I'd come so far from myself mm. thinking that the fame and all of that stuff that I was going for before was going to bring me happiness. Mm. And again, I was just chasing it. Mm. And India really got me back to myself and having an attitude of gratitude really can shift your world every day. Because when you're focusing on the simple things, and this is this is what the tattoo means. Mm, so I was curious about that. Anyone can see I've got a tattoo on my left arm. It's a line. And people ask me what it means. And it's, it's, it's keep it simple mm. and stay in your lane. And this is how I like to live. Whenever mm. stuff is getting complicated, bring it back to simplicity. What am I complicating here? Mm. It doesn't have to be. So India, I mean, was one of those things where I traveled all over from Leh Ladakh in the north to the Himalayas where I did Vipassana with a monk mm. to tra- traveling through Srinagar um, to Kashmir where nobody goes to Kashmir, by the way, because it's on the border of Pakistan and India where sure. it's quite dangerous and there's a big war going on there, but it was the most beautiful place. How was your Vipassana experience? Was that the first time that you had sat Vipassana? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was painful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Literally painful. My body was aching. I wanted to move. I was making them. It's crazy because, you know, I've read that book, The Four Agreements, and it says don't make assumptions. I was making assumptions on everything. Mm. I hadn't spoken to anybody in the room before coming. Mm. Um, and I, I came to the Vipassana and... So I hadn't spoken to them and it's so funny because yeah. you start to make assumptions on where that person's from, what do they sound like. You have these conversations in your head. Totally, yeah. And this is what's the interesting thing is that we do this every single day. Mm. We don't actually realize we're doing it though. Mm. We can be in the street and you're making a judgment and you don't even know that you're having a conversation about it. And um, after being through that and sitting through that it, that's when actually i got the idea i was like i want to go and do a yoga teacher training mm. we got to move one hour of the day <laughs> where we get to do a yeah, yoga session good, it? and this is the funny thing johnny you don't realize how important your breath is until you don't have it mm. you don't realize how important peace is until you've experienced extreme anxiety before mm. so when you have to sit for 10 hours still and you get to finally move, you're going to be grateful for moving. Mm. And there's so many of us that actually have this freedom all the time. Every single day we have freedom to go move and exercise and we choose not to. It's a privilege. And if we start simplifying it like that and go, it is a privilege to move. I don't have to, but I get to. Mm. Then how does my, how do I show up for life? There's times where you're tired and you're like, mm, I can't be bothered. I'll just lay this and sit here and, mm. and binge watch or do this. And it's like, we take it for granted. We take the fact that we can breathe for granted. And you've got to really like pull back and go, okay, 
if I'm not breathing properly, imagine I had to use a machine to breathe every day. Some people do. Mm. Imagine that I don't have clean water to drink every day. Mm. Some people do. And and this is where we get so complicated in our in our problems and, and make it so much worse than it is. Mm. Yeah, what what comes up for me is this um is this line that joy is the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. And you mentioned when you first went to India that you saw kind of there were homeless people living on the street. And I one of the experiences that's, that I've had traveling in some kind of very poor areas in, in Asia is there's almost this unexpected look of sympathy in their eyes but they're they're feeling sympathetic for us mm. because they think that we have all of these these attachments and that we're that we're lost and in some ways even though we see them as being like materially poor they they're rich in yeah. in many other ways as well and that was really humbling seeing someone who i would initially judge as being kind of uh miserable but was actually extremely happy um, and, and a lot of people do that a lot mm. of people from the West would go into these places and go, oh my God, it's so disgusting, it's so dirty. But not realize that these people are actually quite fine and they're happy. Yeah, and yeah. joyful yeah. and really ecstatic. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I really wanted to dive into um, the topic of perfectionism mm. that I heard you speak about with uh, mutual friend Jules. And this is something that has been, I guess it's something that I've, experience in my own life and a lot of friends back home I know struggle with it a lot and so I'd love to hear about what has been your journey and relationship to perfectionism yeah and and how has that how did it first show up and how has it kind of changed over the years yeah it's so funny this subject is uh one of my favorites to speak about and I also run courses on it but perfectionism (laughs) I was like perfectionism started with you know having a father that didn't really express and give approval or say well done or I love you or Mm. good job. So I needed to make it louder. I needed to get better. And Mm. instead of showing it, because I remember him saying, you know, I used to play cricket as a kid. I was 12 years old. You did, yeah. I was 12 years old and I was a great bowler. But I was actually, I was eight years old and on the 12 side. I was the youngest player. And I was a good bowler and I remember getting this guy out three times in practice. And I remember saying, too good. And he turns around and he's watching from the nets. Yeah. And he says to me, hey, don't be cocky. <laughs> and I was like, mm. so what I made that mean was don't ever express or be too confident mm. because people won't like that. Mm-hmm. So you've got to show it in a way where you could be still humble mm. But do it through your actions. No, that's what I did. And I would train. Like I played basketball. I would train, practice. I would practice so many shots. I would have a, a, a basketball ring in front of my yard and I would put pot plants down and I would do my routines and practice. I would practice every single day. If mm. it was winter, I was practicing in the garage. Like mm. I wanted the approval. I wanted the acceptance. I wanted the validation from my father. Mm. And because I wasn't getting it, I became better and better and better at things to the point where I was really good at basketball and quite talented. You know, I went to America and I played in, for my Australian under, under 16s, playing junior varsity and varsity. And, you know, I was wanting to be the best because I wanted it so bad. And mm. the perfectionism, you know, think about this. What is perfect? What do I get when I'm perfect? I get praise. What, I get, what do I get when I come first? I get love and affection. Well done. Good job. Everyone tells you you're good. You're amazing. Well done. So what happens when you don't get that? When I get fed. So we get in, caught up in this thing of like, I need to get it right. It needs to look good. Failure is not an option. And if failure is not an option, I'm not prepared to fail. Then what do I do? I'll avoid failure too. So if I wasn't good at something, Mm. I would have sabotaged it. Mm -hmm. Mm, I didn't try. Mm -hmm. Like school, I wasn't good at. Mm -hmm. So I would avoid it. I would fuck around. I'd be that kid in school that, like, Emil is a lovely student. However, he's easily distracted, (laughs) right? But charismatic connection, I could talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where 
it works for you until a certain extent. And then you realize you've been lying to yourself this whole time. And I've had to redirect this story of perfectionism because what I look at, I look at this. I had this saying that, and I had it on a t-shirt, that perfectionism is a dis-ease. Hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. So what happens when I strive for something that is perfect? I develop unease in the body. That unease turns to dis-ease and that dis-ease turns into a disease. Hmm. And it really is because whenever I, I am unease in that body, then hmm. develops blockages in my body. Mm-hmm. And if I'm developing blockages in my body, now I'm now allowing things to flow. I'm trying to control it. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm trying to control it, what happens to my breath? <gasps> I tense up. Mm-hmm. So the perfectionism, it's an illusion. And that's why I said perfectionism is a disease. It's a disease. Mm-hmm. It's not real. Mm-hmm. And every time we go into a relationship trying to keep it perfect and looking good, which is exactly what I did, I couldn't be real. Mm. And this is the same thing on Instagram. You see people out there that are, I've got the perfect pictures and it looks great and it looks beautiful and you don't see the real thing. And how much people can you connect to when you're not being real? Mm. And this is why over the years I've learned when I went to my first workshop and self-development that how much I was holding back and how much I was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And only when I admitted the shit that, I didn't want people to see, which is I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel smart enough. I didn't accept parts of me. Mm. I was insecure. That I've been hiding it. I call it duck syndrome. Mm. Right? You feel kind of like gliding, big paddling, like crazy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So now like when Mm. I'm coaching students, I'm like, oh, you're a duck. I'm like, you're just perfectionist. You're just trying to keep it all looking good on top, smooth, Mm. but really deep down, it's like you're shitting yourself and you're paddling and you're just trying to keep up this image and that's exhausting. Mm. And when I started to accept the stuff I didn't want people to notice or see and I started to embrace it, only then I could transfer my story about perfectionism and actually learn how to be a student and grow from it, how to learn how to love feedback because I didn't like it at the start because mm. I wanted feedback to be good always. Mm. Right? We asked for feedback and we're like, tell me, what, what do you think? But we're really asking, tell me how good I am as a perfectionist, right? Yeah. So now I've really learned to get feedback and go, okay, how could I, How can I grow from this feedback? What are some of the points that I can take away to step me up to be a better version of myself? Mm. Now when I receive feedback, I'm like, okay, cool. I can pull myself out of it and go, cool, I'm not attached to it as being the absolute truth, the mm. be all or end all. Mm-hmm. And it's always growing. It's always learning. It's always evolving. Mm. So on that note of not being attached to the feedback how do you think we can shift to the way that i think about perfectionism is almost it's like fear but dressed up in a fancy suit it's like Mm. the high achievers form of fear yeah in many ways and i think the the journey that i see for a lot of people is getting all of their intrinsic getting their self-worth and validation from inter internally as opposed to seeking it in the outside world Mm. and I've seen that in my my co-founder really struggled with perfectionism for most of her life. And my my partner, Sophie, um, she was on the outside kind of like like the duck to some extent. And she was amazing at giving to other people and kind of contributing to the world. But when that was threatened or stripped away, it was it kind of like pulls the rug under your self-worth. Hmm. And so I guess I'm wondering how do you begin that journey of feeling an inherent sense of, of enoughness and worthiness without yes. attaching it to the external things. Yeah, so the cure for perfectionism is acceptance. Hmm. And it's like, how do I accept all of the stuff I don't like about myself? Hmm. How do I accept all the darkest things that I have feared people not knowing? Hmm. And when I can embrace that, and I usually like to use it like a child analogy, right? If you had a child in front of you, and it's standing right in front of you, would you reject that child for wanting to speak up or wanting to be seen or wanting to be heard or wanting to be loved? Mm. And we so often do that. We push that child away and we say, no, Mm. I can't let you speak because I have to do this. I can't let you be seen because I have to be showing up like this. I can't let them see your vulnerable side because that's not acceptable. And usually what we're wanting deep down, the perfectionist is wanting acceptance, but rejecting itself. 
Mm. And you cannot reject yourself and then want acceptance at the same time. You literally fight yourself. Mm. And that's the internal fight that constantly goes down. Mm. And this is when when we have perfectionists like perfectionists like to control. We like to have certain ways where we show up. Mm. We don't like to be questioned. Mm. And like I call myself a recovering perfectionist. It still shows up in parts and I still have to <laughs> laugh at it. I'd imagine designing a course on perfectionism would bring up some interesting oh, yeah. dynamics. <laughs> it's like, what is all the things that I do and how does that show up? And, and this is the thing, the ego is really sneaky with perfectionists because yeah. we're so used to, it's so used to getting fed in a certain way. Mm. So the ego gets even sneakier, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is the thing about perfectionism is, is we've got to understand that if we're going to make, especially me as a coach, if I'm going to make the biggest impact, I'm going to have to go to the depth of where I'm still hiding and avoiding and pretending not to know things. Mm. And that totally. could be scary. Totally. Especially when you're building up such an image where people are like, oh my God, I see you as this and this and that. Like mm. I have to like break it down for people and go, yo, this is what I actually do go through. Mm. Um, I was just saying earlier this week, I was going through a big thing of like, I'm struggling to set boundaries. Mm. You know, it did hit me so hard to the point where I was like, holy shit. Mm. Okay, cool. I get to go through this. I get to learn from this and then I get to evolve from it. Yeah. And I feel like the degree to which we go through our own journeys is then the degree to which we can hold space for other people in that kind of container. And if we haven't been to those dark, hellish places ourselves, if that comes up in someone that we're we're guiding, we'll be triggered as well. They'll see that and they'll think it's not okay. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, that... That, that really resonates with me too. Um, this feels like an, a good segue into the world of emotional intelligence, which mm. I've heard you, you kind of equated it to self-awareness, which I really like. Um, what would be some traits of, of humans with, with hierarchy? Like how do you, how do you talk about it in your, in your work? Um, traits for me would see someone that actually gets triggered, but, as they're getting triggered, they can learn how to respond instead of react. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to lead. They're able to build connection and rapport with people. Uh, conversations. How many times I've seen conversations mm-hmm. where people aren't listening mm-hmm. and they're just jumping over the top and, and waiting for their chance to talk. <laughs> yes, and not actually listen, like paying attention to social cues. Mm-hmm. Um, listening is a massive thing, I think, of emotional intelligence because I don't, I don't believe a lot of people listen. And I think with emotional intelligence, it really comes down to ultimately it is awareness, but it's your ability to understand what's going on with somebody else and not take it personally. Because usually what we're doing is we're only going from our own perception of what we know. Mm-hmm. So... I think emotional intelligence is about not reacting deep down. It's about learning how to respond and it's learning how to navigate yourself through uncomfortable situations in a way where you're still cool, but mm. you're just being um, intelligent about enough, enough for you not to get pulled into other people's drama. Hmm. Interesting. I have some thoughts on that, but I will save them for uh, later. The, the other question that comes to mind is um, if you were, so I've been thinking about this topic of, of how to human and I feel like we weren't taught really any of these skills mm-hmm. growing up um, at school. I certainly wasn't in, in England yeah, and it sounds like you found like the four agreements and books that are incredibly helpful, but a lot of people, you know, don't find those things until it's, until they go through some kind of pain or, or loss. And yeah, I've been playing with this this question of um, if we were to create an academy in Bali yeah. for 50 students, different ages, to teach emotional intelligence over, say, say six months, what, what practices and what content would you include in that curriculum? Like, what would that look like? What do you think are some of the, the key day-to-day um, things that people can train to, to build their own emotional intelligence because presumably it's not fixed. No, it's not. And the beautiful thing about emotional intelligence is that anyone can learn it and mm-hmm. everyone can practice it like a like building a muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, I think yoga is great mm-hmm. uh, because 
How so? When I first did my yoga teacher training, I, I didn't expect myself to go into yoga so deeply, but the yoga and the coaching is the same thing. Okay. And this is what people don't understand is that people go, oh, yoga, you're doing a bunch of asanas or, you, you know, yoga moves. And, but every pose is there to, for a purpose. It's to yoke the body with the breath. So if I'm doing, if I'm bending back, I'm opening my heart. Mm-hmm. I've had people break down in my classes when we do an opening of the heart. Mm. People are like, I don't know why I just started crying then. Because we hold our emotions in our body so mm-hmm. deeply. So when you're able to breathe and connect to your body and use that as movement, you become one. Yoga is to yoke the breath and the body. So yoga for starters, I think is great because you're getting an awareness about your body. You're understanding where you're holding tension. I know exactly if I have a knot. I know exactly if I'm tense. Mm. I know exactly where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, meditation is also a massive thing for me. Mm-hmm. Meditating on a daily basis, transcendental, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, learning how to see your thoughts just as thoughts and allowing them to let go and flow. Coming back to the breath and centering yourself with like a mantra. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also mindfulness is massive. Can we practice mindfulness? How do you distinguish between meditation versus mindfulness? It's very similar stuff. Mm-hmm. I think mindfulness for me personally, I think it's just a modern day version of meditative state practices mm-hmm. that I think have built, have, I think it's come out for the West when I think of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing. For me, it's the same thing. I'm like, I'm being mindful of my breath. I'm noticing it. I'm letting it go. Mm-hmm. I'm being mindful of the, the cup of water I'm drinking. I'm sitting here, I'm eating, I'm chewing mindfully, I'm being present. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's the goal is to come back to presence. Because when we're present with our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and we're not reacting to them, or we're not getting triggered, or we're not just going off. Mm-hmm. So many of us do this, and we're like, later on, we're like, wow, I didn't know what happened just then. Mm-hmm. We come back to thought, and we're like, shit, I wish I never did that. And you have regret. <laughs> you know? And that happens in our partnerships, especially mm-hmm. with our parents. Like our parents can trigger the shit out of us. And we're like, we don't even know why because we haven't actually inquired what is actually triggering me right now. There's lots I want to say right now. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, to speak to the, the yoga piece, I think that's, that's really important. And as a yoga teacher myself, I think the biggest gift that it gave me was a sense of somatic self-awareness yeah. and begin to... I, I had... I remember a yin class where I was lying in pigeon for a few minutes and just looked down and there was this like puddle of tears on the mat. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think you're right. We do store all of these previous traumas in, in the fascia, in, yeah. in, in our body. And um, the somatic awareness is a huge, that's been a huge learning for me as well in the last year. Um, the meditation as well, I think is interesting. For me, I've, I feel like meditation is almost like there's an analogy to physical training mm. in that we can choose to train our stamina or our strength or our flexibility. And I think meditation is almost a toolkit for training different aspects of our, maybe our emotional quotient in different areas. So we could train our loving awareness. We could train our focus and concentration. We could train um, our capacity to be non-judgmental and, and these, these kind of things. So I, yeah, I, I'm completely with you on that. Um, the piece that you mentioned at the end around inquiring, mm. this has been something that's been really alive for me. And in many ways, this podcast, one of the one of the questions has been um, around this idea of radical curiosity yeah. or courageous curiosity. And I think that in order to inquire into that, potential darkness or that potential discomfort or that like screaming child that you mentioned earlier mm. um it requires a degree of of courageous curiosity and a lot of people find it easier to numb out or to avoid or to mm. kind of avoid going in and what i'm interested in is what have you what have been some of the the inciting incidents that have led to either some of your clients or people that you've been with or yourself to really dive in and to go into that kind of underworld and to kind of investigate the darkness that is within them. Usually the clients that come to me, are they're at a state where they can't live with it anymore. Mm, right. <laughs> where they're at right. such pain where they're like, well, 
if this doesn't change, then they've reached gonna, some kind of breaking point. Yes, which is a good point actually to get them mm. because if they're not, then mm. they're going to be quite not difficult but harder to develop mm-hmm. along the way because they're not in enough pain to change it. Interesting. And this is interesting for a lot of people that do that because most, mm. like you've got to get to the point where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore and I need support. Mm. Do you think that is essential in the sense of, I, I, I love this idea in psychology around post-traumatic growth mm. and I think that's it's been such a common pattern both in myself and people that I've seen, but do you think that people can go through these kind of inner transformations without getting to that point where the pain is so intense or they, do you, do you they, think it's no it's they necessary? can i think that they, they can if they choose to but they have to have a good why mm. and the why has to be essential to where they want to be going in their life mm. now if the why is not strong enough and usually i for example if i've got a student like i had a student the other day that um she's writing a forgiveness letter and she has to write one to herself first and she also has to write down the resentments rejections revenge and regrets resentments rejections revenge and regrets yeah are, they, are those letters from your regrets or to the regrets well you write down like what are all your regrets okay. over the years okay who was involved what was the situation yeah what happened what did you learn from it and how did it serve you mm. now when you do that process you once you get the learnings you can let go of it other than that, you're going to hold on to the story forever. Mm. And you use that story because you get something from having that story. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't have to deal with this. Maybe I don't have to put myself out there. Maybe I don't get to be the greatest version of myself because I've got this story that I, one day when I was a kid, this happened to me. Mm. So I remember her saying, I'm struggling with doing this concept. Mm. And everyone else was doing it, but she was struggling with doing it. I said, it wasn't enough to do it for herself because she doesn't love herself. She doesn't see herself as important. Mm. So then I said to her, who do you love? I said, who accepts you and who doesn't judge you and who's been there for you your whole life? It's got to be one person. My cat comes to mind. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That would be your wife. (laughs) She said, my grandfather. Mm. I said, cool, you're going to write this letter for your grandfather. And if you don't do that, then something bad's going to happen to him. Knock on wood. (laughs) In four days, how would you write that letter for him? She's like, absolutely, I would do anything for him. Mm. And then she calls me back and she's like, why do I have to do it for him? I said, because you won't do it for you yet. Once we get the start, Mm. they get a little bit of momentum. It starts to peel back layer by layer. But if you've got so many layers on top of layers, on top of layers, on top of layers, they can't see what what the benefit is that is. Mm. So your job, my job as a coach, is to just peel back layer by layer. Make the problem that is complicated so many issues of for themselves over these years make it simple and just one by day bit by bit we're creating habit by habit Mm -hmm. and then once you peel back a few layers and they get to be a little bit of confidence then they start to peel back and go oh my god i think i can do this Mm -hmm. and it takes time but you know that's i think that's the key to really getting them to move and shift the needle there was a um there was a line that one of my friends sent me from the poet Rilke recently in, a, in an email and kind of reminds me of what you've, what you've just been talking about. And the line is, perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. Hmm. And I'm curious what that brings up in you and uh, also thinking about the the idea of having these kind of um, repeat it for me again. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. Yeah. And perhaps we have all of these these kind of um, characters inside ourselves that are trying to get our attention, and they kind of do it louder and louder, um, causing maybe more and more pain and chaos until we finally take notice. Um, does that does that resonate with you? Like what, what kind of comes up? I mean, when I hear it, I, I hear the fact of the hurt being wanting to be seen, but not knowing how. And there's this judge that's constantly putting it down. 
So when I think about that, I think of the person that's always, I'm just going to keep doing better. I'm just going to keep doing better. I'm just going to keep going, keep going, mm. keep going, keep going. Mm. But really not paying attention to the self that's actually needing the most attention. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the biggest problems we are doing instead of being. We're doing because we think we're going to get that. But we're so disconnected from it, from the doing, mm. that we miss the point. And do you think the doing is partly an avoidance strategy for feeling? Absolutely. Mm. You know, you're literally running the race, not knowing why you're running it. Mm. I'm just doing this because I don't want to feel that. Mm. Because if I feel that, that's not good. So I'm just going to keep on doing it from a place of lack, fear, mm. instead of love, creation, flow, abundance. Mm. How do you know if you're doing or creating from a place of abundance versus from that maybe fear-based kind of avoidance? So we're always creating from two places, fear, lack, judgment, insecurity, or we're creating from the other space of fun, flow, adventure, creation. Now, if I'm having fun, I can't have fun and then be too serious about it, right? Mm. So fun is flexible. Mm. Fun flows. Creativity flows. If I'm in this space where I'm like, I have to do it perfect, it has to be right, I have to get this now, Mm. or I'm going to stuff it up, I'm coming from fear. Mm. I'm coming from fear of failure. I'm going to stuff it up. Something bad is going to happen. So I put all this pressure on myself. It has to look like this. It has to be like this. Mm. How is your breath flowing in your body when you're doing the task? Are you actually in a space where things are flowing from you or are you trying to force it? Because when we try and force something, we're mm-hmm. coming from fear, lack. Mm-hmm. Force is to lack, is coming from lack always. Mm-hmm. So if I'm trying to force anything, even in a relationship, then I'm always coming from lack. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming from a place of value, creation, fun, owning, self-expression. Mm-hmm. When we're in full self-expression, that's when we're free. Because we don't care what people think. We're in alignment with our values. We're in alignment with our purpose. Where we feel alive, because we're fully embracing us. Mm. And we're almost getting out of our own way. And it's like, uh, I think of it as like tuning up the instrument of our bodies to kind of let that creativity flow through. Mm. And there's less resistance to yeah. whatever's there. Um, and we all know though. We just ignore it. You, you think we know how, we, how we're feeling at the time or mm. where it's coming from? I think from? we're just not paying attention to it. Mm. We ignore it. Mm. The mind will ignore it. No, 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 just keep going. I like that idea of, of the breath almost being a kind of real-time barometer of what state that we're in. Like yeah. I, I notice sometimes when I'm replying to emails, there's, uh, my friend calls it email apnea. It's like when you're holding your breath and you're like, <laughs> I need to like get yeah. through this. Yeah. And it's something that I kind of catch myself out on. Um, so yeah, I think the breath is a good like instant like way of getting feedback? It's your quickest way of getting feedback. Mm. I think it's the most profound way of getting feedback because everything is stored in the breath, every emotion, every mm. thought, every it's connected to everything. What happens when I'm stressed? What does your breath do? It goes shallow. Yeah. It beats fast, your heart beats faster. What happens when I'm calm? My breath is long mm. and flow and flows in and out. And do you use <clears throat> pranayama to change people's states and to kind of guide people from a kind of sympathetic fight flight response into a more i actually don't do pranayama i don't teach yoga anymore i don't do pranayama but i do do visualization i get him into a theta state Mm -hmm. so i've also done theta healing as well so i get them into a theta state and i calm the whole body down through full body relaxation for people who might not be familiar with theta state could you briefly so there's five different brain waves there's theta delta gamma alpha and beta and theta healing is an intuitive kind of healing where you it's like it's kind of sounds funny it's kind of woo <laughs> you tap into like there's seven stages seven planes and you go up to the seventh plane and you bring it down uh-huh. and i'm still experimenting with it mm-hmm. but when i um when you're in theta state you're the most impressionable like you're downloading from your subconscious and you're talking to subconscious so mm-hmm. i get people into a state of theta And when they're in that state, then I do a visualization for them. And that can shift them in two seconds, maybe two, three minutes where I can calm them in their breath, do a full body relaxation Mm -hmm. from your feet all the way up to your head. 
mm-hmm. tend to relax and then mm-hmm. count them in and then they're in. And then I do a full visualization and I just go on what my gut is coming up with mm. and what they need. And then, uh, and they can see it mm. and it's powerful. And it's a, a way to shift their whole perception. Mm. And when I bring them back, they're like, huh? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. It sounds really similar to, um, yoga nidra, which is something that I've yep. been kind of exploring recently yoga and nidra. really geeking out over. Um, so another kind of area that I'd love to dive into briefly was, a few weeks ago, I was invited to join a panel at the practice down the road. And the theme was, what does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? Mm. Which was a really like deliciously juicy topic. And the room was the room was packed. There were both men and women in the audience. And it was interesting for me how alive that conversation felt in the room. Like there was this real like palpable tension with people there. And I think for me, it, it just planted some seeds of questions that I haven't yet figured out the answers to um, but I know that you've been running men's retreats and you've kind of been thinking about this for a while so mm. what are the questions that are most alive for you in the the area of masculinity right now? For me uh, you know I think about masculinity and I think about what is healthy masculinity what does it mean mm. and even the question what is it to be a man and I think you know, we're always moving from masculine into feminine and, and vice versa. And it's like, how do I have a relationship with both? Mm. And I think for what it's like to be a man is to have a relationship with them both and not reject the feminine part of you and also embrace what it means to be masculine in a way where it's like, what is masculine? It's to lead, it's to show up, it's to be the rock, it's to stand. But it's also what we've been told is don't feel emotions. Mm. don't show emotions don't express if you're feeling that space and i think this is where we've been we've been brainwashed over the years of like just get over it just keep it moving Mm. and i think for me personally as a man myself in relationship you know when when with a partner i want to be able to express fully without fear of judgment including everything that i'm scared about Mm. and still stand in my masculine and be okay with whatever's going to come back. Mm. And I think a lot of men don't want to do that. I think a lot of men have that fear of being rejected if we do express fully and that vulnerability. Mm. And I think a lot of men also don't like to be vulnerable. And I think, you know, healthy masculinity and to be a man is to be vulnerable, fully vulnerable, but to own it. Mm -hmm. And when you own it, then you can really say with courage, it's like, yeah, this is my shit, but I'm going to work on this and I'm going to work through this. Mm. And it may look, may not look perfect, but at least I will show up every single time and I will show up in integrity in that space. Mm. And I think for these days, it's, it's becoming more and more evident where there's men's circles and people wanting to speak up, but it's not necessarily, it's like, I need to be the rugged, this masculine alpha, you know? Even the word alpha, I think it's funny, right? Because <laughs> what mm. is alpha and why do you want to be alpha? Mm. And where is it coming from? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I agree with I agree with that. And it feels like there's a lot of a lot of men, particularly here in Bali, who have rejected that kind of toxic masculinity narrative around not expressing feelings mm. and rejecting that alpha kind of stereotype. But there's not really a clear archetype or, or certainly not many role models with people to kind of so, something to move towards but i i really like what you just said about f- freedom of self-expression and being willing to i suppose express and share whatever is alive in that moment in a courageously vulnerable way yeah and i, I think making um or or reframing the narrative around vulnerability in particular and not making it about weakness or or maybe it's about um maybe softness is a better word Mm. maybe it's like kind of having that strong back but like a soft front Mm. and a willingness to to feel it all but to kind of hold space for it at the same time i think with men as well we like to put up a wall as soon as it gets uncomfortable Mm. as soon as we see emotion come out of a woman we're like holy shit what do I do with it? And mm. a lot of us don't know what to do with it. 
which kind of comes full circle back to the avoidance strategies of our own own stuff of protection of Mm. i don't know how to deal with this and i need to solve it right and i think the biggest problem is we don't need to solve it Mm. and we can allow that that woman to be in her emotion and be in the the midst of her chaos and just be there Mm. as someone that can listen Mm. but not solve and I think that's a really important trait to the other to do because we normally just want to, we're logical, we just want to, I just got to solve it. What's the problem? No, let's go. Let's get over it. Mm. It's, it's so tr- ingrained in us mm. that it's like we don't need to solve everything. That's where we get our validation from. Yes. Because if I do solve this and I fix this and I feel important again, I feel needed. Mm. And this is where I think um, where it's turned where women – Men haven't been stepping up. So women started stepping up. Now women start getting into the masculine. But then they don't know how to get into their feminine again. Mm. Because the man is not stepping into his masculine mm. properly. He's not leading. And he's got a mother, not a partner. Mm. And then mm. what happens? <laughs> <laughs> and That's all good. <laughs> yeah. It's like, mm. yeah. It's like I'm in a partnership, but I got a mother. Or I'm in a partnership and I've got a son. I think the piece around uh, not fixing is is really important and it's something that I think I gradually um, got better at. Uh, I was in a, a long-term relationship with um, someone who had bipolar mm-hmm. and my whenever she was in these kind of anxious or depressive states, uh, my impulse was also to try and like cheer up or to be like, how can I, how can I make you feel better? Yeah. Because, but I, I realized that the the impulse as well as caring for her was from a place of that was bringing up those feelings in me and i wasn't okay with feeling those things mm. and so i wanted to change her so that i could avoid it and that's a bloody good example because we all do that mm. we all want to fix it because we're uncomfortable with actually the mirror that's showing us right now mm-hmm. and also you know you maybe i imagine very empathetic as well so you're like oh my Mm. god what's going on and Mm. we naturally want to do that we want to we want to be there for our partner and be like okay it's going to be okay and maybe it's worked in a few times so you're like i can just do it again (laughs) but it gets Mm. to the point where it's like we also have to allow them to go through it Mm. without trying to fix it Mm -hmm. without making it wrong Mm. without enabling it and without um judging it Mm. which which it feels to me like the work of, um, I suppose I'm stepping more into this role of being a facilitator as well, both for meditations and for um, kind of workshop experiences. And I feel like the process of holding space for other people is also teaching me a lot along the way. And I'd be curious to hear what do you, what have you learned about yourself from the process of stepping into this facilitation and coaching? Kind of I world? think... Um like you know i run workshops and big events and holding space is key because what you'll see is it it all reveals everything reveals itself and um there's been times where i do live intervention on stage and you know Mm. everybody's watching and you're like okay what's going to come up for this person and Mm. you have to be extremely present Mm. And the holding of the space is extremely powerful, but you, I have to be so grounded in who I am in that moment for that person to fully allow it to come up. Otherwise, it won't come out. Mm. If they don't trust the space or if they don't feel that, that energy between you guys mm. and my energy is unshakable or yeah, yeah. shakable, then they're going to not express in the way that needs to come out. Sure. So I think with that space, I mean, holding space in general is, is, is a skill in itself. Because you've got to trust yourself. Mm. You've got to trust your ability just to be there with that person when they are in full chaos. Mm. And especially when you're in front of people too, because mm. everyone can see them. And this is what they've been hiding and avoiding their whole life. Mm. So I love it. I mean, I, <laughs> I love doing live intervention. I love doing like this kind of work in front of people. It's like you don't actually think about anything else. You're fully present in that moment. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And before we started recording, um, <clears throat> you mentioned that l- trusting yourself yes. as well as setting boundaries had been a big theme for you this year. Mm. Um, Massive. Which, yeah, is, it's been definitely present for me as well. Um, so I'd, I'd like to wrap up with kind of a few 
three kind of quick fire questions. Yeah. Um, and the first one, which might relate to what you've just been talking about, but what moment did you feel most proud of this year? After I just finished my the first elevate we did in April, mm-hmm. or second elevate in April, um, we had about a hundred people. Mm. And we had some massive shifts and we pulled off something really big. And I really started to understand my power as a coach Mm. and how much power I can be. And then this is when I started to realize what is possible. Mm. And that's what I mean by trusting myself going, holy moly. Mm. Like I've still been playing small and now I'm starting to understand what what is possible. Interesting. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned... um, I, I love the idea of writing those letters to different kind of areas of parts of myself. What would be a couple of good journal prompts that you might leave listeners with for maybe kind of reflecting on, on the year or some journal prompts that you found helpful? Um, for the year, I was actually going to do this, so I think everyone can do this. I would write down what are all of the triggers or what are all of the things that trigger me this year? What was some of the hardest times I had? What did I learn from it? Who was involved? And how did it serve me? What is the lesson? Hmm. Right? So that if we can look back at this year and go, what are all the lessons that I learned? Or what are all the hard times? And you get the learnings from it. You don't take that into your next year. You take the learnings. So when you take the learnings, you then are able to go, okay, cool. I learned from this and this and this, that this happened this year. And I'm going to take this learning into next year and I'm going to start applying it. Unless you want to keep repeating it. <laughs> you know what to do. Hmm, I, I like that. It's almost like the, um, the final stage of the, the hero's journey is kind of returning with the boon or with the lesson or with the insight back into the ordinary world so that yep. you can then go through the cycle again. <laughs> Until you learn it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, last, um, last quick fire question. Um, what intention would feel like a truly radical act for you in 2020? What kind of, what would scare and excite you? To be fully self-expressed. Huh. My, my intention for 2020 is to be fully self-expressed in all areas which means no more hiding and playing small mm. even though i think i'm doing great things and bigger things i'm, I'm still playing in my comfort zone to mm. an extent mm. so that means even going deeper with where the darkest parts of me that i still haven't revealed or allowed to be seen which means that kind of take me to another level of acceptance and that's what I think full self-expression is. And if I want that for my students and people that work with me and that come to my space to be fully self-expressed, then I'm going to have to show up as that first. Mm. Beautiful. So we're going to be including links to all the things, website, social media, in the show notes. But um, where would be the best place for listeners to find out more about you and what you're up to in the world? They can go to my website, www emilsteenveld.com or check out my Instagram at emilsteenveld awesome um, and to wrap up there's a, there's a question that I, I love to close these interviews with and it's inspired by another Wilco line which is try to love the questions themselves and live them now perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live your way into the answer and so with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? I would ask yourself, who do you want to become? And what are the traits that that person has that you are going to need to practice to embody that person? Hmm. And do you feel like that's a question that you're living yourself? Yeah. For me right now, it's like for me to take that into the next level of 2020 and with my company and my vision and who I want to serve. It's like, who do I want to become and how is this aligning with my 10 year vision? 
which is interesting that it's on 2020. Hmm. But what are the traits? What am I going to do daily? And it's through the daily habits and it's the daily rituals that that will come alive. But I need to always check in and go, what have I done daily that is aligning with my 10-year vision today? I have to come from it to create it. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure <laughs> being on here. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.